you can now listen to Conning the Con ad-free on Apple subscription and buymeacoffee.com forward slash Conning the Con. But that is not all you will find there. I've got two little words for you. Tonka Trilogy. If you know, you know, right? And if you don't, keep listening to Conning the Con and it will all become clear soon enough. And if you want a sneak peek, head over to at Conning the Con on Instagram and get a look at the lighter side of this, well, very heavy con story. Simply click the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts for ad-free and bonus content. Or if you aren't an Apple user, head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash conning the con, where on top of that ad-free and bonus content, you can access exclusive videos. You'll find all the links, as always, in the show notes. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, my tribe of true crime addicts. It's Sarah from Conning the Con podcast here. And I imagine you and I have quite a bit in common. I am a complete true crime podcast junkie. And having had the opportunity to go to CrimeCon 2021 and meet all my fellow podcasters on Podcast Row, well, I was like a kid in a candy store. Not to mention all of the incredible speakers, exhibitors, authors that were also spilling the tea there all weekend long. So don't miss out on the next Crime Con. It's in June on the 11th and 12th in London 2022. Trust me, you don't want FOMO. Don't forget to use the code CTHEC at checkout to get your exclusive Conning the Con discount. That's C-the-C. You know, like calling the con. I can't wait to meet you all there. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it Wouldn't it be great if you could actually be a human lie detector? 
if there was ways that the subconscious body language actually gave liars away. Like perhaps they would repeat themselves too much or pause just that little bit too long before answering a question. Or maybe it's the absence of something, like a blink, that seals the deal that you are talking to a bald-faced liar. I've always wondered, is there actually any science behind it? So I asked Dr. Muir. So there is some evidence that you can distinguish liars from truth-tellers based on these micro-expressions. So the idea is that someone who is suppressing a true emotion will reveal that suppressed emotion through these very minute expressions of it. But I think what they found in one study anyway was that you can only distinguish the truth tellers from liars based on expressions that were between 0.4 and 0.5 of a second. Anything less than 0.3 didn't distinguish them and anything between one second and six seconds didn't distinguish them. So it seems like it's a very specific length of expression. So I think for a lay person, it's not going to be that practical to, to be able to identify them. Well, that's disappointing, but it's not all bad news. There are some things you can look for to protect yourself. When you're forming a picture of someone with psychopathic traits, there tends to be some specific like behavioral cues of that, which is this kind of very intense eye contact, leaning forward, sort of pushing and breaching physical boundaries, this very like familiar, very familiar kind of personalized body language with someone like very soon, like so soon that you feel it's a little bit much or uncomfortable, but it can also be quite compelling. Coming up in this episode. And maybe writing this as a way of trying to explain to people that I am a good guy. Morality kind of speaks for itself. Someone shouldn't need to make that so explicit. I ended up opening several restaurants and bars between 2012 and 2015. I'm Fabian Christoph. I'm the ex-owner of the Milan Morrison, which I sold to Andrew Tonks. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Shadow dark upon the wall, moving slow and stretching toward her hands, hold them up. In the last episode, we uncovered Andrew's involvement with Queenstown Restaurant, a deal that meant for Tony, the owner, he would be selling his flagship restaurant for a cool seven-figured sum. And for Tom, Andrew's investor and would-be chef, it meant the funds he was days away from borrowing from his family to pay the deposit were saved from getting tangled in a Tonka turd storm. Its discovery had added another charge to Andrew's ever-growing rap sheet. He had wasted no time taking the financials he had been privy to as part of the restaurant deal and used them to fraudulently lease his Ford Ranger truck. And let me tell you, Tony was pretty pissed about this when he found out but he was definitely more pissed at the tens of thousands of dollars that he'd wasted on paying lawyers. Lawyers had used to dot all the I's and cross all the T's on the deal. All in all, exposing Andrew had felt like a good day's work for Emma and I. But I still had this little nagging doubt starting to creep in. Was it possible that Andrew would have actually made a success of the restaurant business if I hadn't got involved? 
Would he have actually gone straight? And if so, would he then have been able to pay back Emma that money legitimately? I know it sounds kind of crazy, but we just really didn't know what was fact and fiction anymore. So those stories that he had told Emma over the several months of dating, I started to wonder if they could be true. Stories like these ones. Andrew was really proud of the amount of restaurants that he had established in both Tasmania and in Melbourne. So he told me very early on about his restaurant success, probably in our first date. And for me, I was like, well, that's a lot to have done in a very early time frame. Uh, he talked about how he'd started with one business in the Hobart waterfront and then that expanded to five in a very short time frame. And that had they done really well and he still had shares in some of those businesses. I don't think there was ever a chance that if he'd done that restaurant, I would have got that money back because I think he would have still used that as seed money for something else. Like I don't think it was ever going to feed the the big chunk of money back. It would have been the interest payments again to keep me at bay. So it got me to thinking, I knew that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And it was then that I remembered something from the Tonka trilogy, something that might just lead me to the answer I was looking for. Would Andrew have made a real success of the restaurant given the chance? So back I go to the source of all things Andrew, the Tonka trilogy, for clues on where to look next. I purchased my first restaurant outright. I loved it and decided I wanted more. I ended up opening several restaurants and bars between 2012 and 2015. In between all of this, I was doing some very specific jobs for agencies. Intel gathering on money launderers at VIP events, watching routines and movements of persons of interest, while looking like I was attending to my own business. It all worked rather well. In 2015, I had one landlord royally fuck me over. I had spent almost a million dollars on a fit-out again for a three-story restaurant, bar, and nightclub. Everyone in Hobart knew it was coming. And then, boom! The landlord had sold the building to the Chinese and overnight had taken the money and run. According to Andrew, he'd spent millions on a restaurant fit out and soon after it was up and running, he was completely cleaned out by the landlord. And surprise, surprise, we've heard this before, it was of course no fault of Andrew's. But maybe the restaurant, it sounded like it could be plausible. Maybe there was some truth to that part. Well, that's what I was thinking until I read on to the next paragraph in the trilogy. I knew I could track him down easily, but the agencies approached me again as they needed another deep inside job. We used the opportunity to remove my online involvement and plant seeds for my next op. It was trans-Tasman, and it was two different targets for two completely different reasons, but, but they were ending up in the same place. Another fucking prison. How the fuck did I become the prison guy? Sam, you fucking homie, let me tell you. So using my broken spirit due to my failed nightclub, I packed up and headed for New Zealand. Despite getting into a healthier lifestyle with my partner, she was always going to be the party girl. I thought New Zealand would be good for her, but unfortunately it only reintroduced her to old habits of drugs and alcohol. Funnily enough, some of her contacts became good ends for me to set up some major busts in both New Zealand and Oz. She would kill me to this day if she found out but they were the very, very bad people and kids were involved. Sometimes I had these very hard decisions to make between operation success and safety of the public or children, things like that. 
and I have to blow some big leads that took me six to 12 months to repair to get kids out of the situations or stop an imminent threat to the public. Again, you don't get any thanks for this. And maybe writing this as a way of trying to explain to people I care about that I am a good guy. As I was editing this story together, this section of the Tonka Trilogies reminded me of a conversation we'd had with Dr. Muir about warning signs. And it seemed to sum up pretty much everything that was in that whole section of the trilogy. All these tall tales and stories and showboating their feats, name dropping, talking about how how maybe how tough they are and brave they are, all this signaling of grandiosity, but also signaling of empathy. And I think that's a really interesting one because you'll find that there's a lot of talk about how morally superior they are or what a good person they are, or how much they care for other people. Morality kind of speaks for itself. Someone shouldn't need to make that so explicit. It sort of just comes up in the everyday interactions, you'll see it. But if someone is really going out of their way to tell you what a good person they are, that's typically a warning sign. That seems like a particularly helpful warning sign to be aware of. But back to the Tonka Trilogy, I wanted to see if I could find anything out about the restaurant that had apparently been sold out from under Andrew. So off I go, tap, tap, tapping, and lo and behold, I come across an article on an Australian website called The Mercury. It was dated the 28th of March, 2015. The mill on Morrison has been taken over by transport businessman and former wakeboarder Andrew Tonks, who's brought in South African-born chef John Botha from the Aproneers. Mr Tonks said a name change and new direction were planned for mid-year. Well, it wasn't long until I found an article on that new direction Andrew mentioned. In an article dated June 28, 2015, so a mere three months later than the previous article. Hobart restaurant The Mill on Morrison, which unexpectedly closed early this month, will soon reopen with founding chef Fabian Christoph again at the helm. Transport businessman and former wakeboarder Andrew Tonks was in process of taking over the restaurant with plans for a makeover and name change. Mr Tonks said he could not comment on the reasons for the collapse of the deal for legal reasons, but said he was looking for another venue in Hobart. Something fishy was definitely going on there and I wanted to know what really happened. I decided to do a little fishing and cast out a line to the two names mentioned in the article, John Botha and Fabian Christoph. And it didn't take long until I got a bite. According to John Botha, the chef that Andrew had brought on board to rebrand the mill, he had met Andrew through a girl he was dating at the time and she was friends with Andrew's sister, so it wasn't a really close connection. After a month or two, he'd offered John the head chef gig, and John had been excited by the prospect and even brought with him a team of his own from his previous restaurants. John's relationship with his new boss was relatively new, but there was one person who had spent several months of that year getting acquainted with Andrew Tonks. I'm Fabian Christoph. I'm the ex-owner of the Mill on Morrison, which I sold to Andrew Tonks. But before we go too much further into Fabian's story, I was really curious to know what his impression was when he'd met Andrew for the first time. Like a ex-jock, you know, the pink polo top with the collar up sort of person. So just something like that, like he was pretty sure of himself, obviously, I think we all know that. Didn't come across as anything dodgy, obviously. Fabian had not actually been looking to sell the restaurant at that time, but he was approached by an agent with buyers, buyers that would eventually fall through. 
So Fabian thinks, fine, uh, wasn't really that bothered about it anyway. Let's leave it at that. But the agent has a backup buyer. And then he's gone, well, I've actually got this other guy who was Andrew uh, Tonks. He's interested. So that's how Andrew came into the picture. Then the issues started. And those issues were with Andrew's finance. He had initially intended to purchase the restaurant with 100% finance, but he was unable to secure that money. So it was suggested by the agent that perhaps they could use vendor finance. Now, we've heard that bandied around earlier, vendor finance, with the purchase of Queenstown Restaurant. Again, I think it's probably just easiest to think of it like a higher purchase for business. The business in this instant was Fabian's restaurant, The Mill. But it wasn't a matter of Fabian simply handing over the keys and Andrew paying him back those monthly repayments. Andrew needed to provide enough security to cover 100% of the value of the restaurant. So say for argument's sake, a business is worth $100,000, then the buyer would need to be able to provide $100,000 worth of assets. Assets that would then revert to the seller if the buyer didn't stick to the agreement. Well, if we do 100% finance and he has 100% of security, worst case scenario is I get it back and we can claim everything of the security that was put up. It seemed like a win-win for both of them. Fabian was selling his restaurant for what was a really great price and Andrew was getting an up-and-running business without having to put up as much cash as he would for a traditional bank mortgage. So there was a bit of toing and froing with details, and it was decided that Andrew would still pay a deposit, but much less than he would need to if he'd gone down the traditional bank mortgage route. All in all, the 100% security was made up of three assets. Two were properties that Andrew apparently owned, and the final asset was a truck. Not your run-of-the-mill farm kind of truck, but rather a proper freighting big rig. He was meant to sell the truck, and that truck was going to act as the deposit. It was going to be $150,000. And that's when things started to get a bit odd. It seemed like there was delay after delay for the purchase, and it was all related back to the sale of the truck. Without the sale of the truck, there was no deposit, and it just seemed really hard to pin down the details of the truck for the lawyers it was starting to sound very similar to the way Emma's lawyers couldn't pin down Andrew for information on the property he'd put up as Emma's security. Remember the property in Moak Lake? The one he never actually owned? I know there were times that my lawyer asked, can you get this VIN number again because it's not working? And I would ask him and then he would text me it and I'll forward it on to my lawyer. They were in charge of checking everything. They wrote down... Uh, it was either a 7 was meant to be a Z or 5 was meant to be an S or something like that. So they could never figure out where it was. So I was always getting these numbers don't match up. And now a word from our sponsors. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. 
head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing. I'm Sarah Ferris. Join me and my co-host, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've watched the reality of poor planning. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've really sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Our hope is that together we can stop the cries of never again fading into until next time. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. The lawyers, they couldn't quite pinpoint those truck details exactly. And then there was this story that Fabian recalls Andrew used to delay the sale even further. He said one of his trucks has been involved in a fatal crash on the Hume Highway in Victoria. Um, and he has to go there. Uh, it must have been via email, because I remember reading it, um, saying it'll be on the news tonight. So I googled fatal truck crash Hume Highway, like, the last 24 hours. There was nothing there. I emailed back my lawyer and said, get him to provide evidence that this has happened because there's nothing on the news or on the internet. And then I said to my lawyer, I said, this is the same rego number that is used as the security and never got a response. 
because of all this other shit sort of going on. So unfortunately for Fabian, it wasn't until months later when the horse had already bolted from the stable, he's trying to untangle Andrew's trail of chaos and he goes back through those documents related to the sale. And then when I I dug through all these emails and bits and pieces and it was the same truck. Well, the same truck rego that he gave. <gasps> so I was like, well, this was before the sale. And I'm like, well, if the truck's involved in a crash... How is he selling that truck? How indeed. But don't forget, Fabian didn't find that out until it was too late. Prior to that, and after a very rocky and very dragged out start, somehow the lawyers managed to get what they think are their ducks in a row for the purchase of the restaurant. It all looked like something was going to happen. He said that the truck was getting sold at maybe late April. Um, mid-May, and we set a date for the sale. The sale went ahead when I was in Thailand. So Fabian has taken a celebratory holiday to Thailand, thinking that the restaurant is no longer his concern. His only link left to it is the lease for the restaurant premises, which was then sublet to Andrew with the sale of the business. All of a sudden I was getting emails from the landlord saying rent still hasn't been paid. Um, We're going to change the locks you're going to need to come back in and take it over again. So he took over on the 1st of March and he ran it. He probably got locked out mid-May. So it had only taken two and a half months for Andrew to run the mill into the ground. And what had happened in that two and a half months, that's where Fabian's old staff were there to fill in the gaps. There was a couple of people that stayed and I would get horror stories. Like they would come in at 7 o'clock in the morning and he would be passed out on the atrium floor because they all got drunk the night before. So like half an hour before customers are walking in or 15 minutes before customers are walking into the building, he's like in the middle of the atrium, passed out, stone cold drunk. And that story was backed up by John Botha. These are John's words, but not his voice. I saw that something wasn't right about two months in. There started to be missed payments to suppliers. It all started to unravel when I couldn't get answers out of him. Him and the wait staff would be in the restaurant till the early hours of the morning most nights drinking. I know what it's like for a restaurant owner to be profitable and knowledgeable about running a restaurant. He didn't have any of these skills. It was hard to get a hold of him when things started to go badly and suppliers stopped delivering. He'd be very scarce, wouldn't answer any of my calls. I even had to go to his house a few times when staff weren't paid on time. When he hadn't paid me and the other staff members our monthly salary, I couldn't get a hold of him at all after numerous calls. Eventually, he told me and my friend that his mother had suffered a heart attack and was in hospital. But after my friend called around, it was discovered that this was a lie. After we spoke to his mother, he stopped being contactable and disappeared virtually overnight from where he was staying. Finally, Bayless notice was attached to the door one day when I went to open up. The staff couldn't enter the building. As far as I understood, he hadn't paid for the restaurant or the rent. Fallout wasn't as bad for me as it was for the other staff. I lost about $5,000 in wages. But as far as reputation... It's taken years to build that up again. And that's where we pick up on Fabian's story again. 
Fabian is forced to cut his not-so-celebratory holiday in Thailand short and has to come home to repossess the business. Not ideal, but at least he has that security in place, right? Well, Fabian's idea of security and Andrew's idea of security turns out they are not quite the same thing. So when I was in Thailand, we found out that the truck was a lie. Um, It actually sold the truck uh, six to eight months earlier, which then obviously uh, created a little bit of friction with me and my lawyer. And then as soon as they figured it out, it was all after the fact of the sale. Basically, if I knew that the truck wasn't real, um, I wouldn't have sold the restaurant to it. The, the reason why the truck was important was that I still had a business loan. And obviously doing vendor finance, the, the truck was going to clear that loan, give me some money until he started paying monthly repayments. Because none of that happened, all of a sudden I've got a business with a huge debt and no working capital. So it was a bit of a pushing shit uphill from the start. Fabian tried to revive the restaurant, but its reputation had taken a hit. Not only had he taken a hit with the business loan he had now courtesy of Andrew, but thanks also to Andrew, a once thriving and lucrative business was run into the ground within a matter of months. I asked Fabian if he felt like he had been deliberately defrauded. Oh, it was definitely intended. Like I had, actually had a police officer contact me from the fraud squad to ask me some questions and I said the same thing I said to you. I was like, listen, I'm going through a civil thing with him at the moment. I can't comment on anything right now because lawyers have just said to shut the fuck up. There is something so broken in the system that forces a victim of fraud to have to choose between chasing their lost money through the civil system, or chasing justice through the criminal one. I think what Fabian's story reminded me of is how frustrating this whole process is, both from a a victim's point of view, from the legal end. Like, how do you actually go about dealing with the con man and dealing with something something like this? To get the money back, he had to go via the lawyer route and civil versus going through the criminal justice. And that, for me, is really frustrating because I went down the – criminal justice and was hoping that was going to be give me the things that I needed but you don't know at the time which is the right way and it's frustrating you can't just choose both and get the justice and the money and the the things you need out of this to recover. Emma and Fabian chose different paths to what they were hoping would be the same outcome justice and reparation but Andrew he wasn't really quite finished with Fabian yet. I did get a text message Facebook Messenger message maybe two years ago. And it was just like total cock and bull story. Uh, like apologising, saying, like pleading that it wasn't his fault. It was all lawyers who'd been set up by, like his lawyers had let him down and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it was probably about, I don't know, 18 months after he got knocked out. It was, I know it was after his first into jail in. New Zealand. Hey Fabian, hope you're well. How's the new business going? Mate, just wanted to touch base and apologise about everything fell apart a couple of years ago with the mill. Fair to say I'm super pissed with the way some of the things were handled from the landlord's side and others out of my control. 
Hopefully I'll get some results from these in the near future. Well, they end up costing me a fortune in the long run. Anyway, I've had plenty of time to think about it over the past year or so, and I just want to touch base and say sorry for the inconvenience. I enjoyed meeting you and dealing with yourself. Hope you're well and business is good. Might see you over beer one day. Take it easy. Tongsi. That email, it reminded me of something that Dr. Muir said back in episode four. We know that people who do offend criminally or con others, they are very good at justifying why things make sense, why things are okay, rationalizing them, making excuses. Yeah, some very complex kind of cognitive distortions there. While Fabian was on the phone, I wanted to pick his brains and see if he could fill in any of the gaps for us on Andrew's past. I started with running a few of Andrew's own tall tales past him first. So talking of restaurants in Hobart, one of the stories that he liked to wine and dine on is that he had five restaurants along the waterfront in Hobart that he all, he owned. Um, that, <laughs> that, um, I know, it's good, isn't it? Uh, you don't even have to, you don't have to finish, I don't think. You don't answer. <laughs> well, enough said on that one, but it did trigger a story that Fabian had heard about Andrew after he'd fled the country. And I must preface this by saying it was only his recollection of what he'd been told, but it does bear a striking resemblance to the story Andrew told in the Tonka Trilogies about his thriving classic car and Harley-Davidson importing business. Remember this one? It was late 2008 and the GFC had hit the USA bad. What I discovered was the US was nearly giving away classic cars, motorcycles, boats and then general toys such as jet skis and dirt bikes had become ridiculously cheap as everyone was holding on to what money they had left. I saw an opportunity and I jumped on it. I purchased four classic cars, around a dozen Harley Davidsons and I also got five jet skis and five dirt bike ATVs. I put these in a shipping container and sent them to Melbourne. Within the first four weeks I'd sold everything I'd sent. I've heard two ver- two versions of this. One was Harley Davidson, one was jet skis, um, that he was a jet ski rep. And he would say, well, I've got a jet ski contract or a Harley Davidson contract. Um, I can get them, like if they're 120 grand, I can get them for 50 grand, but I need to prepay for them to get them in here. So people would like give, him, give them money so he could buy them to bring them over. And obviously he never did. According to Fabian, Andrew did this to a member of a well-known Australian gang whose name he wanted off the record. That person was pretty keen to kill him. It's kind of weird knowing that somebody else has gone through a similar process to me. Uh, Obviously, Fabian didn't date Andrew, but he definitely got screwed over. And I think the watching how much he's been through over that time frame and knowing how the impact it's had in his life, I, I, I really feel for him and I feel for the for his future victims, for Andrew's future victims, because it's not just a few months or a few dollars that you lose. It's so much more. And while Fabian seems like to be in a really good space, the ripple effect of dealing with this person and having him come into your life is so much more than you could imagine. For Fabian, the Tonks tornado had left him first out of pocket to the tune of $150,000. Second, he was left with a thriving, successful business run into the ground in a matter of months. Not to mention the cost of a legal battle he was stuck in that would drag on for the subsequent five years. 
And finally, you can't put a price on the hours, the days, the weeks, months and even years of time poured down the drain. And I think it had answered the nagging doubt in my mind that had sent Emma and I down the restaurant rabbit hole in the first place. From watching his past behaviours, I don't think there was a chance if he had got that money for that restaurant and moved into that next business stage in the con with the Queenstown restaurant that I would ever see any part of it. I don't think that was ever his plan or his intentions. Fabian's run-in with Andrew Tonks happened in 2015. And before we aired the first episode of the podcast, that was as much as we knew. But in the next episode, we meet Axel, Kate and Sarah. Because as we suspected, you cannot go from zero to conman overnight. But for us, it was this really slow process of teasing out the lies from the truth. I had no suspicions at all about anything other than the fact that he was just a bit weird and he lied. Like, he was like a compulsive liar. The alarm bells started to ring when she heard, overheard him on the phone one day to someone saying, sorry, I'm not here, I'm in Melbourne. When he wasn't in Melbourne, he was actually at home in Hobart. The shadow dark upon the wall Moving slow and stretching toward her hands Hold on my desk The shadow dark upon the wall Moving slow and stretching tall And up to the mountains her gaze is If you liked our story, please share with family and friends and like, subscribe and review so others can learn from my lessons. If you or anyone you know has been affected by something similar, please reach out for help. You are not alone. We've included some links in our show notes. Conning the Con was made with the input of Dr. Sophie Muir and the original music is by the talented Aroha Min. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com My name is Bill Huffman. 
and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.